This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. In the ever-changing landscape of the book industry, one genre is standing out as the fastest growing in fiction, particularly among young adult readers. Romance novels were the highest-selling genre of fiction in 2022, with the research company Circana reporting 19 million units sold just through August of last year. That followed a strong 2021, and the genre is seeing a two-year high in overall growth. Analysts say stores are dedicating more shelf space to romance, and the social media app TikTok may be helping the genre reach new, younger audiences. We're visiting the world of romance novels to learn why readers are having a love affair with the books. Jessica Van Sloten is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Bay College in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Her research focuses on teaching and learning, and she also is a scholar of popular romance fiction. She formerly taught at UW-Green Bay, where she gave a TEDx talk entitled Romance Novels Are Feminist. Jessica, welcome to Central Time. Thank you for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. How do we define the romance genre? You know, a lot of, a lot of books will have a love angle to them. What is it that makes something a romance novel? Yes, that's a great question to start us off with because often there's a lot of confusion about Mm -hmm. how to qualify something as a romance. So there's basically two essential elements that mark something as romance. It needs to have a central love story, so that needs to be the main focus, and it needs to have what the Romance Writers of America call an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Now, romance novels are selling great, uh, but... They sometimes don't get a lot of respect, it seems like, uh, for a couple reasons. I think some people just look down on them as, uh, you know, maybe formulaic or cliche on one hand. And then something I know you've talked about, including in that TEDx talk I mentioned, is that uh, from a feminist angle, people say, well, is this really a great message? You, I think, are defending romance novels uh, these days from from both of those concerns. Make your case. Yeah, so I think they have been historically maligned since the beginning, It was fiction that was primarily associated with women, and there was a lot of skepticism around that and around things that women like. And as the genre has kind of expanded, where I see the promise is that it's giving messages of hope and possibility to all kinds of people to be loved for who they are. We see a big rise in representation of LGBTQ folks in romance novels in uh, people of color, in romance novels. And and so that's where I see the, the potential and the celebration of joy rather than than only oppression, right? So those are some of the ways that I, that I personally embrace the genre and I know some of my fellow readers do as well. In addition to having just a, a more, more diverse array of characters and maybe authors, are there other ways in which you've seen romance novels change over the years? Yeah, I think there's been a transformation, particularly of the biggest genre convention that people like to think about, the ending, right? Um, That historically, romance novels ended in marriage. If you think of Jane Austen's classic novels as romance, they always end with, you know, the, the couple getting married, what we call the happily ever after. And over time, that really transformed into what we call a happily for now, right? There's, there's more of a a temporariness sometimes to those endings and what what that happy ending looks like um, is going to be different. And so I think that's something that's interesting. We also see a change in the, the voice, right? It was really popular for a long time to have alternate voices. So if you had a traditional heterosexual romance, you would have one chapter from the male perspective, 
the next from the female, back and forth. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a rise in single point of view romance novels. And we've seen pretty good sales numbers, as I was saying at the beginning, and some thought at any way that uh, that younger people, young adults are driving some of those increases. What do you see as the the appeal of the modern romance novel to younger readers? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to think about how this rise parallels both the rise of first bookstagram, um, which is sort of people of my generation, Gen X, um, gravitated towards that social media and younger generations, transforming that into book talk, right? So on TikTok, um, as well as the pandemic, right? And, and just the influence that had on, on people's habits of consumption of media and the kinds of stories that they were looking for. And what romance provides with us is, is hope and possibility, um, a place where characters are, are loved for who they truly are and vulnerability, um, as well as some interesting rise in, in a kind of dark romance uh, subgenre. So I think, you know, getting at the, the uncertain times that we've lived in and, and, and romance gives us a nice container that we, we know things are gonna end well in the end of the book even if it's turbulent throughout. So I think those couple of, of threads um, are important. And the third one I would mention is the rise in sort of a parasocial relationship, the ways that um, consumers of media can be connected to the creators of media through social media, right? They can follow their favorite authors on TikTok and Instagram and feel like they're having a relationship with them, right? And so there's a closeness um, that's very exciting and appealing for readers. We're listening back to a conversation about romance novels with Jessica Van Sloten, professor at Bay College in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The genre is seeing more sales and some younger readers. If you're a romance novel fan, let us know what do you like about them? Who are some of your favorite authors or characters? Email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Talking to Jessica Van Sloten with Bay College in the UP in Michigan, looking at romance novels, a big boost in popularity lately, and they've changed over the years too. Now that uh, talk I mentioned you did at UW-Green Bay a couple few years ago, looking at seeing romance novels as feminist and not just, uh, as as some people have criticized, reinforcing gender norms. Uh, can you give us a, a, a Cliff's Notes version of, of what were you, the case you were making there? Sure. I think the case I made in that in that TED talk was that we really see uh, these stories that are, are places of, of positivity and um, a way for people to work out their relationships to power. So, uh, a scholar I really admire, Catherine Roach, thinks that romance novels uh, give uh, folks who who don't have as much power, um, traditionally women or, or maybe LGBTQ folks. Um, ways of leveling the playing field through romantic relationships, right? So, you know, if you think about your typical romance storyline, there's conflict, but in the end, um, there, there's, there's happiness and usually some, some kind of egalitarianism. Um, and so that's, that's one thread that I think makes them a, a potentially feminist genre. 
I'm a I'm a science fiction reader. That's kind of my genre. And there's some works where I'll you know defend the writing and uh, the innovation and things like that, and they're awesome. And there's some that are you know kind of cliche and formulaic, but I still kind of like them anyway because it's my kind of thing. Do you see that kind of variation as well within the romance novel uh, genre? Yes, definitely. <laughs> right. Um, and as I was as thinking about coming on the air today, I'm thinking there's whole subgenres that I just don't read, right? Um, for one reason or another, they're just not my, something that I'm drawn to. And that as someone who has a literary background too, I'm really interested in the quality of the writing and the craft of the plot, right? And there is a lot of variation. And I think the most important thing is that people are finding stories that resonate with them. Um, and for each reader, that's going to be a little bit different. And romance is such a big tent that there's something for everyone. And the, the rise of self-publishing has allowed more people to write stories and get them in front of readers. And I think that's that's a powerful other um, component of this, this rise in popularity. Now, if somebody's listening and thinking, okay, yeah, I'm a reader. Uh, maybe you've got me almost persuaded with this romance novel thing to check it out where you can name names if you want here, Jessica, where would you steer them to start? Like what would be a good entry point or author or subgenre or whatever that that new romance uh, novel reader could, uh, could open the door with? Yeah. I'd like to tell you about a book I'm reading right now. Okay. I haven't finished it, but I know it has a, it's going to have a happy ending because that's the promise of the genre, but um, it's by an author named Adriana Herrera. Um, and it's called A Caribbean Heiress in Paris. And it's a historical romance. So if there's any fans out there of Bridgerton, for example, this might be for you. It's set in 1899 Paris World's Exposition. And she does a lot of really clever things in updating a, a historical romance in that she has characters of color, um, characters, you know, from the Caribbean islands who have envisioned a way to produce um, liquor, not relying on slave labor, right? And so she's really um, making some interesting statements and, and really transforming and modernizing the genre and doing it in a historical time setting, which I think is pretty cool. Now, a personal example for me, uh, I grew up thinking, you know, Jane Austen, you mentioned earlier, you know, I'm a guy and that's mostly written for women. So I never touched it. I didn't consciously avoid it. And then I started reading Jane Austen. I'm like, this is really good. But I read more and more. Can you make the case to the guys like me out there who might think romance novels, they're just not for me to begin with? Yeah, I think one interesting way to think about it is that Jane Austen was was writing what we might call domestic fiction, right? And um, male authors have written that over time, right? Maybe the narrator, narratives have had a different arc or they've prioritized things other than the love relationship. But, you know, even if someone is, say, a Jonathan Franzen fan, right? He, he writes these complex families and relationships, right? So, um, I, I would say that someone could could pick up a romance novel and find some interest and satisfaction. And and actually, there's a, a great author, uh, Lissa K. Adams, writes these bromance um, book club series, and it's about a group of men who read romance novels in order to have better relationships. <laughs> so, and they're pro athletes who are in this club that that read together. So, 
um, there's a lot of interesting um, entry points for, for readers of all genders. Jessica, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was Jessica Van Sloten, Dean of Arts and Sciences and Scholar of Popular Romance Fiction at Bay College in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We listened back to our talk with her about the rising popularity of romance novels and how the genre has changed over time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Fool, sucker, chump, pawn, whatever you call it, nobody wants to face the humiliation of being taken advantage of. And there's some science behind that. In her new book, our next guest looks at the psychology behind our fear of being tricked, of being scammed. And she says that fear can actually do more harm than the actual risk of being scammed. Tess Wilkinson-Ryan is a professor of law and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. She's the author of the new book, Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and What We Can Do About It. Tess, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I, I can think back at situations in my life where I felt like, oh, I think I just got ripped off while I was a sucker. <laughs> and yeah, I, I felt terrible and humiliated at the time. It's not just me. You dig into some of the, the science behind this. What is it about that experience that, that can affect us so strongly? The, when you are playing the sucker in some way, so imagine you get scammed in like, a, in like a little street scam or you, you know, send away for something in the mail and you, you know, and you get it in the, and you get it back and it's some little ridiculous coupon or something. When you experience that kind of trick, the, the loss that comes, the, the loss, the financial loss or whatever, that's a little bit of a hit. But the bigger hit is that it makes people blame themselves for what happened and it makes them feel really silly and really kind of ridiculous. So you both have this feeling that you have participated in your own sort of downfall. There's a self-blame which feels terrible. And then there's also the feeling that it's embarrassing, that you've embarrassed yourself or sort of experienced some kind of social humiliation um, that is incredibly aversive for most human beings. Yeah, and this is a, a big point. If somebody stole $20 out of my pocket, I might think, oh, I should have been more careful. But this is on them. If somebody tricks me out of $20, I feel way worse. And this is part of your title here. The social order in some way has been disrupted. Why is that such a big difference? You know, I think when someone tricks you, the natural meaning that like, humans derive from that situation is that the person who has been tricked has been sort of put down. They've been kind of kicked down a rung. So that someone, you know, when you, the expression that someone got one over on you, I think that also refers a bit to the social hierarchy, right? They have now sort of climbed above you on some kind of a ladder, and now you look like, um, you know, the, you're sort of in a worse position. So socially, it's embarrassing because you look like you have been demoted, kind of, um, because you've been able, you were sort of weak enough weak enough both to be an attractive target and also to actually fall for it. Now, I think that's the way it feels, but I should also say, I think that feeling can be misleading. And there's all kinds of cases where that feeling is sort of taking us to a place we don't need to go. That's exactly where I wanted to go next. The The fear of being ripped off could actually do more harm than those instances. And there's actually a word for this that's been come up with, a sugrophobia, the fear of being a, a sucker, basically. Can you talk about that concept? Yeah, sure. So the word sugrophobia, I have to think of the authors who made this up. This was three uh, psychology researchers um, uh, who wrote a paper and they coined this term sugrophobia. And, and I think they must have been having a good time when they when they coined <laughs> this. It literally means like the fear of sucking is pretty funny, right? Um, and, and their idea was, look, this is a 
common enough phenomenon that it deserves a name. And they covered a bunch of super interesting examples. So I read this paper by, by um, uh, Kathleen Vose and Roy Baumuster and Jason Chin when I was in graduate school. I read this paper and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. They described all these instances of people like really overreacting to feeling taken advantage of. And one of the ones that stuck with me was, uh, was, the, was these examples in the US of people having like physical altercations with vending machines. Um, and and losing. You, oh, oh, very much so. Like the number of vending machine associated fatalities is non-zero. And so like, which is wild, right? But the idea was people would put their money in the machine wouldn't give them their snack or drink or whatever. And they would feel like, oh my gosh, I've just been ripped off. And they would start shaking the machine. Now, there's just no way in that case that it's worth any kind of injury for a $1.75, whatever, bag of chips or whatever it is, right? Um, and there are other cases in life, I think, where the overreaction can either cause that like fight instinct, right, to, to sort of shake the machine, or cause people to sort of steer clear of opportunities or um, even like charitable instincts that would otherwise be attractive to them. Talking to Tess Wilkinson Ryan about her new book, Foolproof, how fear of playing the sucker shapes ourselves and the social order and what we can do about it. Okay, Tess, so far we've kind of focused on the individual. I don't want to be ripped off, but maybe that fear of being ripped off is going to change my behavior in bad ways. There's a wide, yeah. a lot of wider issues here you get into, including uh, social groups in, in many societies who are associated with the scam artists. Some of our words, I won't say them for being ripped yeah. off, come from uh, ethnic slurs, basically, over uh, the years. Who ends up being feared and suspected as the one that's going to turn us into suckers? Yeah, it's, it was pretty wild to me when I started looking, thinking about this research because a lot of examples sort of occurred to me because of exactly what you say. There are literally ethnic slurs that mean to taking advantage of somebody. Um, and oftentimes the groups that are painted as sort of likely to take advantage are going to be outside groups. So it's very a very common manifestation of like xenophobia, right? These groups are coming to your country. The argument goes, um, these groups are going to come to your country and take your stuff, right? Don't be lulled into feeling like you're just doing the right thing or sort of doing something humanitarian goes this rhetoric. Actually, what you should be worried about is that you're going to be sort of too open and they're going to take advantage of you. It's, I find some of this, some of this sucker rhetoric pretty widespread and pretty pernicious when it comes to racial and ethnic stereotyping, because it basically preys, it, it sort of tells people the humanitarian instinct or the, the, um, the care that you have for justice or equality those aren't good things. Actually, it makes you a dupe who's going to be tricked into endorsing some kind of, you know, quote unquote, special favorite or something like that. Um, so the idea that I'm trying to sort of play out in the book is the idea that you can use this sucker rhetoric to kind of change people to sort of change the social order. You talk about that as, as weaponization of the sucker right. rhetoric. Can you talk a little bit more about how that uh, might appear uh, in the political world? Yeah, for sure. So the idea of weapon. The idea is um, that there are lots of situations that could be described as, for example, this is my my humanitarian view about, for example, immigration, or this is my idea about what is right. And you could describe these things as being sort of rooted in your values, or if somebody wanted to, they could re-describe that exact same set of values and beliefs as actually you're just being a sucker. 
and when they describe when they describe those beliefs as actually just being a sucker, it's a way of weaponizing the idea of suckerdom because it feels so bad to be accused of being a sucker. It's an idea of sort of it's a way of sort of warning people away from their some of their most I would say most sort of human instincts. Um, and so some of the weaponization um, that I describe in the book come came, I noticed during the 2016 presidential election um, when one of the sort of consistent um, a consistent part of his Trump uh, of his uh, stump speeches that Donald Trump was um, was offering were um, was this sort of old fable about a woman who meets a snake on the road and the snake says I'm cold and I'm injured please take me in and he'd, he'd tell everyone this story and, and he, they would take the the woman would take the snake in the snake would bite her and she, this and she says why would you do this you know you and the snake replies you knew I was a snake what were you thinking so the story is about how being compassionate can make you a stucker and that story was deployed at the time as a specific warning that Americans are going to be suckers in all these different arenas you know foreign aid or trade or immigration it seems like there are counter narratives that uh, stories in our lives that we could do that that would con- uh, contradict that test and you you kind of talk about strategies in the book i just think of the the example that fits that format is the Good Samaritan story where somebody does uh, help someone and and give to someone who they would suspect just given their social nature. And it goes in in the other direction. How in the, what can we do about it? Part of your subtitle, uh, what kind (laughs) of things do you hope people think about when they think of suckerdom in their lives and, and politics? You know, there's all kinds of situations in which it's totally rational to be and it's sensible to be worried that something isn't real, right? That you have to, that you're, that you are in fact going to be taken advantage of. I don't think it's always irrational. The goal that I'm trying to suggest in this book is that we want to like get like right size it, like cut the fear down to the size that we actually want to take up in our own sort of moral lives. And so the ways that I suggest doing this have to do basically with just articulating our values and articulating the fear. It, I know it doesn't sound like it's particularly, you know, it's, it's not like mind blowing <laughs> intervention, but the, right, but the idea is that in, in a lot of situations, your goal is something like, you know, integrity, or my goal is compassion or generosity. And the thing that's warping my ability to think clearly about you know, sort of what's gonna get me to vindicate those goals is that I'm so nervous, people are gonna think I'm actually a fool. And if I say to myself, well, look, how big of a deal is that? Right. Oftentimes the answer is eh, not that big a deal. You um, can, and if that's the, yeah, sorry, you, go ahead. you give an example uh, that you go back to in the book test as someone who teaches students of that student yeah. toward the yeah. end of the semester. Somebody just passed away in my family. Can I get an extension? Can you just uh, briefly yeah. talk about how you evaluate your values to say to, to figure out what to do with that? Yeah. So I think a lot of um, faculty can find themselves kind of ruminating a bit on like, what if the students, what if the students are putting one over on me, you know, with reasons they need an extension or whatever. And one of the things that I often think about is what is the difference between getting it wrong and getting it right? So if I am concerned that a student is, is you know, using an excuse that isn't true, right? And I let them have the extension, that's not that big of a deal. An extension is no big deal. If I basically refuse the extension or behave as though I'm suspicious and I'm wrong and in fact they are going through a difficult period in their lives that's actually terrible that's really what that that to me is a much bigger error that's the thing I really want to avoid 
So I try to think to myself, look, what's my goal here? Overall, my goal is to sort of help students on their way to learning a lot and becoming humane professionals. And most of the time, the best thing I can do is to take what they say at face value and move forward. It's very rarely going to be in going to be actually sort of vindicating my true values to sort of be on alert for all kinds of you know minor minor scams in my everyday teaching life. Tess, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for sharing your book with us today. Thank you so much for having me. That's Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, professor of law and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. We've been talking about her new book. It's called Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Our Lives and the Social Order and, sorry, Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and What We Can Do About It.